day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful name it is. Amen. So much beauty, you're so beautiful, you are so much I love that song, do you? There is something about the name. There's just something about the name of Jesus that just, it's melodious, it's beautiful. His eyes, the scriptures say to us, are like rivers of water, like liquid love. His appearance is radiates. His presence is extraordinary. His love is radical. And the hope he gives us seems unbelievable. Amen. The beautiful name of Yeshua Messiah, Jesus. Thank you, Juliana. That was wonderful. How's everybody doing? I'm so glad to see everybody here. I know that there's vacations and things, and this time of year, people lose um, interest and um, or lack of commitment and all sorts of things that happen. But here's what I say when I pray for you all. Lord, bring the people who need to hear this message here today. Let those people that are out across the nation dial in and stream this class today because you see the Lord has divine appointments for you today and this is one of them. An appointment to come into this sacred space and worship Jesus and meet him in spectacular ways. It's because where he is, is where we want to be. And where the presence of God is, is where extraordinary things happen to ordinary people like us. Amen? Who in the story today is the guilty woman? One filled with shame and regret and hurt and disappointment, and ridden with all sorts of things, feeling bound up where they're in chains. Who is that guilty woman? The question we'll be answering today is, could this guilty woman be you? Is it possible that when you evaluate your life, you have a big scorecard that says, pronounced as guilty? Or perhaps you have the scorecard and you've pronounced someone else guilty. Who is the guilty woman in the story today? 
women of faith, we find ourselves receiving guilt in all kinds of places, shame and condemnation. But you know what I found with women in particular? We are hardest on ourselves. Would you say amen to that? We're hard. Why? Why? Why do we do that? We are hardest on ourselves. Let's begin in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. This is the day of a divine appointment for the women here and watching by tape. Lord, we thank you that your presence is real and palatable. And Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will descend upon us, will settle in on us and in us, Lord, and that you would speak through me. And Lord, I do pray that when we leave this place today, we will leave transformed by the power of the living word. Amen. I wrote this talk. I had some extra time over the weekend. And so I wrote it because I knew it was going to be a busy week. And I deleted it by accident. <laughs> Have you ever done that? And you go to the auto recovery and the save. And it wasn't in that because they only auto recovery save certain things. And I called my computer man and on the phone. And he's trying to walk me through this. And he says, I've just got to tell you that it is lost because it was in your RAM, it was not in the memory, it did not go to autosave, and he gave me the reasons. And I said, I need a different word than that, sir. <laughs> it took me hours to write this, and by the way, it was Holy Spirit inspired, and I don't know a thing that I wrote on that piece of paper, so you need to resurrect that thing. <laughs> Big pause. Ma'am, I can't do anything for you. So then I moved to my next victim, who was my husband. <laughs> I said, fix this problem that I have. And you know how we do to the ones we love the most. I just was so annoyed, and I was so upset, and I was so distraught, because I recognized I didn't have any other time to do it this week. And so I played the blame game. And of course, naturally, I went back feeling guilty and said, I am so sorry to my husband. Will you forgive me? I just took it all out on you. And he said to me, his comment was, are you sure three people didn't die today <laughs> with the way you're acting? <laughs> Here's the deal. The Lord Jesus is the God of second chances. We're not going to get it right. We're going to screw up. We're going to delete important things, and then we're going to blame it on other people. Of course, of course, we never did it. We are a mess and in our messiness and in all of the stuff that we're covered with, the Lord reaches down and he picks us up out of the miry pit. We can't even get out of the pit by ourselves. We can't get out of the mud that we're stuck in. He lifts us up. He draws us out of the pit. He offers us forgiveness of sins. And then he takes his living water and he washes us clean as if it were never happened, as if it never happened. He takes our sins as if they were from the east to the west and washes us completely white as snow. That is radical to me. I cannot imagine that the Lord has given us this gift of forgiveness for our sins. It's hard to wrap our hands around it. He is the God of second chances, and this is exactly what we're talking about today. I want us to review together where we've been so that we can see where we're going. Because we have just blitzed through the pages in this scripture in John. And in 13 short weeks, we have had encounter after encounter. And I think it's important because every week we talk about that needle moving. 
But there comes a time, let me just explain this to you, that every encounter that we have, the needle of God moves into the place of transformation. And we've been moving and moving, becoming more Christ-like as we enter into these stories, as we recognize that we are all these people. We are the man by the pool of Bethesda. We are the woman at Samaria. We are the woman that was pronounced guilty in this, and yet Jesus said, no, you're not guilty, sin no more. I have pronounced you forgiven. We are all the people in these stories. So we, as we go through this, each encounter, we are being changed. But for each encounter, now listen to me, fellow, fellow women of God. This is really important. For each encounter where we're changed, the enemy, the counterfeit, comes in on the back end and gives us a one-two punch. He does not want to see transformation in our lives. He doesn't want to see us grow into the image of Christ and sparkle with the glory of God. He does not want this. He panics at the thought of Christians. Do you know what Christians means? Christ, Christos, means anointed one. And Christians means little anointed ones. And we are all Christians here in this room and watching. And so the enemy panics when he sees little anointed ones being transformed and going out and transforming the world through the power of Christ within us. He hits a panic button. So the counterattack. So we see over and over again in this story, we see where people are being changed and having encounters with God and the enemy comes behind it. And we see that in the form of the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes who do not want to see their perfect world transformed. They don't want to see people come into fellowship with Jesus. I'm not even sure that they understood what they were fighting against. They were fighting against a religious system. They were fighting against the law and those things that were set into place. When Jesus came, he ushered in a new kingdom, and his kingdom is without end. And when he came to us, he opened up the new wine, and we'll talk about that. They were fighting against the destiny of the world, which is to bring us and offer us eternal life. Amen? And so every time your needle moves, every time you enter into the words of this magnificent scripture, you change and the enemy, and I tell you that so you'll be forewarned. Those who are forewarned are forearmed to tell you that these counterattacks are nothing to Christ. When you begin to change, stand taller. When the enemy starts hitting his and, and putting his darts out there, slap on your shield of faith. In Ephesians, it says, put the shield of faith on for what reason? So that the fiery darts of the enemy can't penetrate your heart. And so we see this happening. So what we're going to do in slide one, if you'll put that up, I feel like I'm on a runway up here with lights. Do I look like totally lit up or is it just me this morning? Ah, it's the glory of God then. If it isn't the lights, it's the glory of God. <laughs> what we're going to do here is I want you to open your scriptures to John chapter 1. We're going to take a little bit of time on the front end of this teaching because I want you to see the needle moving in encounters with God. 
I don't want us to just extrapolate each chapter as we look at it. And certainly Max Lucado does a wonderful job in the study guide, but it certainly paints this big picture. And I want us to enter in so that we really are understanding the holistic picture of what's going on and what God is doing in our lives as we study and meditate on the word in John. So what we see in first chapter of John, and by the way, back to the needle. What happens with people is we begin to be transformed and we get to a point in our lives where we don't want anymore. Where we think, thank you very much, God. That was a wonderful gig. I enjoyed it. We've gone so far, but this is about as far as I'm going to go. Now, obviously, you don't say that, right? Nobody says that to God. God, I've had enough of you. I mean, the truth is, you don't even realize it. But here's what happens. We get ankle deep. This is in Ezekiel. It's in somewhere in the 47th chapter. I'm not exactly sure where it is. I'm probably wrong there. But we see that the temple, the water flows from the temple. We are that temple. And we get ankle deep and we're like, this is fun. We can splash in the water of God. And then that water comes out. Ezekiel has a vision of the temple. The water's coming out of the temple. We are that temple. And pretty soon it's knee deep. Well, we're doing pretty good. The water of God is beginning. We're still having a good time. And then pretty soon it gets to be about thigh deep and waist deep. And pretty soon you're right about here. And it's right where your nose is. And you're thinking, ah, hello, I'm going to drown. I'm not going deeper with you, God, because I'm going to drown. This is too much. And maybe consciously or unconsciously, you and I say no. We like to stay about waist deep because waist deep can take you. Am I just like screaming up here? Is it loud? We get it about waist deep and we think we're still in control, right? You can walk in the water waist deep and it begins to go like and you're beginning to float and pretty soon you're up here. Now here's the thing. We get to that point and the needle begins to do this. I want God, I don't want him. I want to go deeper, I don't want to go deeper. Some of you here in this room and watching are right at that place. We all get there. We all hit that place. We all hit that patch. And we're not sure what's going on. Our spiritual life seems a little flat to us. We don't really hear God answering our prayers. We're not really sure what's going on. We've had these encounters with God, but something has changed. Something has changed. The needle's stuck. Well, I dare say the needle's not stuck on God's part because he's constantly transforming you from what? Glory to glory. So it's not on his point. He's moving you from glory to glory. So something's happened with you. The relationship is on your end. Either you are, aren't aware that you don't want to go deeper, or you're afraid, or you don't know it at all. So when you get to that place, that's the time where you go back to God and you say, Lord, I've had lots of encounters with you here, even studying this course or throughout the years, but I'm sensing that I'm stuck. And Jesus says, you are. This is your moment to go deeper. This is your moment to let me take you to unfamiliar places and walk with me. It is a new level of deep calling unto deep, and it's a new level of trust. So the reason I want to walk you back through these is I want you to see where you've been and where you're going and to co-labor with the Holy Spirit's work in your life and allow him to keep going. We get stuck with regret. We get stuck with pain. We get stuck with shame. We get stuck with insecurity. We get stuck with all kinds of things, whether we realize it or not. So where have we been? Chapter 1, the Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made. And in him was the life and the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the very beginning of the gospel, we recognize that God and Jesus are one, and the Spirit are one hovering over creation. In the beginning was God. Jesus came and he said, repent for the kingdom is near. And when he came in, he's ushering in his new kingdom. And then we move straight into the wedding at Cana. And in the wedding at Cana, we see his first miracle in which he changed water into wine. Let's constantly look at these, not as stories, but as deeper spiritual encounters with God So in the beginning was the word was with God. In the beginning, you were created by God. The deeper truth and the deeper meaning is that God was in the beginning, but in the beginning, he created you. You are made in his image. You are beautifully and wonderfully created in the image of God. Then we move into the wedding at Canaan, which we see Jesus becoming poured out wine, where Jesus is the wine that has been transformed, where indeed that wine comes to us in the form of accepting Christ, and the new kingdom ushers in in all the glory into our lives. Do you see, we can just say that was a great miracle, right? We can just say, yay God, good work. But it is much deeper than that. He is the wine, and he is the wine that comes into your lives and radically transforms it. Then we look in, let's see, the wedding chapter 2 is Cana. We move on, and we move into the cleansing of the temple, which is chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep. Do you remember the story? Was this just a great story where Jesus got mad? And in his house, in the temple of praise and prayer and worship, he saw that it was being made into a den of thieves. They were exchanging money. They shouldn't be doing that. It's a house of prayer. How does that apply to us? We are the temple. What are we doing? What is robbing us? of the things of God. What is in our temple? Where is the den of thieves? What has substituted? Where's the money exchange going on in our temple? And Jesus says, I am coming to cleanse, to clean, to really get into your messy lives and wash your temple clean. You see, if we look at this as just Jesus cleaning the temple back in ancient of days, we've missed the whole point. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he desires to come in and cleanse and deliver. And so we see this text under the, under the lens of what is really going on at the deeper level. And John does a magnificent work, doesn't he? He takes us deeper, layer upon layer. Then we begin to see this Nicodemus, born again in Christ. Let's take a look at chapter 3. We see this man, this Pharisee. He comes in the middle of the night undercover with his robes. And he's trying to figure this thing out. And he goes... You must be God. No, no, no. God must be with you because you do incredible things. Nicodemus is us. Folks, he is us looking and asking and questioning. Are you him? Are you the Messiah? Who are you? Jesus answers, truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So we see this wonderful story of Nicodemus the Pharisee trying to sort out who this man Jesus is, trying to see Are you the one that we waited for? 
Now, he is in with the big groups of Pharisees. I mean, he is the top of the religious system going on over there. And he comes in, and he asks these questions. Who are you? That's us as we begin to see. And Jesus says, unless you're born of the water and spirit, you can't see. We are the same. We must be born again of the water and the spirit and filled with his Holy Spirit. This just isn't a story about Nicodemus. This is a story about us. And then we begin to move on and we see our beautiful woman at Samaria. The woman who's at the well, look with me in John chapter 4. Jesus is learning that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was, was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And then we get in and he begins to go into Samaria. He passes through the town. He meets a woman, verse 7, from Samaria, and he says, give me a drink. Now, do you think that he just randomly found this woman at the well? No, his daddy told him, I have you on mission. You remember this chapter? Sit by the well and talk to this woman. You are, we are the woman at the well. We are thirsty and we're dry. And Jesus comes to us and he taps on the door of our hearts and he says, you're that woman. It isn't just a wonderful story. It's an encounter that we enter into. And as we sit by that well, when we are dry and empty, Jesus fills us and gives us his living water. And then we move into Jesus with the official son. And we can see that specifically in the chapter 4 in about verse 46 Jesus goes to Cana of Galilee, the same place he made turn the water into wine. And all of a sudden, a man comes up to him, an official son, and he says, heal my son. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And the official says, I know you can heal my son. And Jesus says, go, your son is already healed. Are you the official that believes in Jesus are you the official that knows that he's the one that brings healing? Are you the official, are you the one that understands that by a word you are healed? Are you the man or the woman who trusts God that when he gives his word, his promises are yes and amen? Are you in this story or was it just a great story that you read about a healing a long time ago where Jesus did it at a great distance. If you're not entering the story, you've missed the transformation that Jesus gives you a word. He'll give you a word today. Right now as you sit here, you will hear a word, write it down. As I speak, God will speak to you through his word. And that is your word to hold on to and hold on to it. Ask the Lord to unpack it. He spoke the word and with the word he was healed. What is your word that God's speaking to you today? And then we move into the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And we see that healing take place in chapter 5. And he's in there and the man is sitting there for 38 years. And, he, and Jesus says, you want to get well? Are you the man at the pool of Bethesda? Are you the woman sitting there? And you're sitting on your mat, and you're wondering, do I really want to get well? I've been here a long time, and you know, I kind of like being bitter. And you know, to tell you the truth, I, it's not that I like being bitter, but there's some kind of pleasure that I get in lording over you the fact that I won't speak to you. Right? There's something in humanity that makes us sit beside the pool of Bethesda and sometimes waddle on our pity pot. There's something about that man sitting there that makes me ask the question. And those of you are saying, well, God, he couldn't help it. He was paralyzed. But if you go to the deeper layer, we are that person sitting on our mats. 
And when God heals us, and I think I told some of you all that, that I had this, I came up for prayer. I told my leadership team, I'm not sure I told you, came up for prayer about four weeks ago. I didn't really know what I needed prayer for. And I went up, and as I walked up, before I even got the prayer, the, the person that was praying for me said, you know, I'm hearing that you have a fear of self-promoting. And, and it's, it's kind of keeping you down because you're fearful that you're going to be prideful. And I'm going to tell you what, she, she and her prayer partner broke that thing off of me, and it was gone. I was the man, the woman at the pool of Bethesda who for many, many years would not step out in faith because I thought it was self-promoting rather than God-promoting. I do not know your story. I don't know who you are, but enter into this story. And then the mat. I picked up my mat. I walked with it, and I did the stuff that I needed to do to make things right as a leader, as a ministry leader in my home and, and not worrying about offending or people-pleasing or whatever. Self-promotion. What is your mat? Where is your place of Bethesda? And the place of the mat, what did we say, is the place of your anointing. You pick up that mat and suddenly what was your place of misery becomes the place in which you restore and deliver others. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus who can take us by the well, who can heal us at the pool of Bethesda, and suddenly we find our crumbs in our hand, last week's lesson. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Suddenly we enter into chapter 6, and we see the little barley loaves. Last week I said whole wheat, they were barley. Which actually indicated that, because that was something that the poor people ate, that this was all he had. Some commentaries described it as little pita bread that this little fella had. What little pita bread barley loaves do you have in your hand? And as they were multiplied, and we stood beside him in the Sea of Tiberias, right there, and we see Jesus multiplying the bread, that is us as we sit with our crumbs in our hands and go, oh, this is all I have to offer you. You know, this week's been an amazing week. It's been a hard week. One of our sisters here in Drawing Near to God had some pretty serious surgery. She had to have a shunt put in her abdomen and through her right at the base of her skull. They had to put a hole in here and feed it all the way down. And, and it was just, we went from there to another sister of ours whose daddy's dying and a, another person that's cancer and another person that had um, a terrible situation with a family member. And it was a hard, rough week in ministry. And I held my crumbs out to God yesterday. And I said, Lord, I don't have anything to give these people. I visited them. I took food. I bought dog food for one of them. I said, but there's nothing here but crumbs. And the Lord said, you didn't enter the story last week of the feeding of the 5,000. Give me those crumbs, Joanne, and I will multiply them. Are you entering the story of the 5,000? And then we see Jesus walking on water. We didn't talk a lot about that, but all of a sudden, there's a big storm coming up, and Jesus walks in the water. And what we see is, in your circumstances, Jesus makes the water still. Go back and read chapter 6, right about verse 16, where Jesus comes, and he quells our fears, and he calms the storms of your life. And then suddenly, we see in 622, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
He stands up and he's multiplied the bread. And then he says, I am that bread for you, for the people. I am the bread of life. As we move on in our story and we begin to see before we get to chapter 8, we see one more thing that I want to walk with you through. And that's the rivers of living water. And we see the rivers of living water in chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast. Are you following with me? Are you beginning to soak this in, that this is the story that is your story and my story? That this is alive in our hearts and in our spirits. On the last day, Jesus stands up in the Feast of Tabernacles. We see him standing up and they would pour the water on the altar. And as they're doing this ceremony, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the living water. All these rituals and all these things they're all pointing to me. The bread that was multiplied is me. The wine, that, the water that was changed into wine is me. The living water, the bread of life is me. If anyone thirsts, he says, let him come to me. And you all, the Pharisees, missed it. Now think about that. Let that soak in because why do we miss it? Why do we miss all of these stories are about us and all of the, the things that the transformation and the needle moving? How do we miss it? What blocks our eyes and what blocks our ears to seeing it? They missed it. The reason they missed it is that they were in their religious boxes. They were looking for the Messiah somewhere else and he was in their living room. And for us, that's a poignant statement that where we meet Christ is in our sacred, holy space when we praise him and seek him and worship him. He is not on the television. He is not in politics. He is not in your relationships. He's there, but he is not the relationship. Jesus, the rock, the beautiful name. We only can see him when we take our religious, pharisaical eyes and we open up our hearts to see him in the homeless on the street, to see him when we walk out the door this morning, to see him right here in our mix sitting beside us. They missed him. Are we missing him in our homes? Those last points we're going to look at after we look at the woman caught in adultery so we can take that down. As we go into this week's lesson of the woman caught in adultery, I want to frame it with the cross and Jesus' love for us and for you and for me that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, that he sees us magnificent creations as we really were meant to be. A precious young woman wrote me an email this week and she wanted to quote from a book she's reading and I'm going to read it to you. This is what... It reads, Jesus was so unconventional, he chose fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes. He saw them through different eyes. The level of value he treated them with was so uncommon, and he believed in them. Jesus wasn't just a football coach, and this really struck my attention, who saw someone's potential. We do that, don't we? I see potential in you. He wasn't just a football coach who saw potential in people. He saw them fully restored into their original design. He did this through the lens of the cross, offering forgiveness and restoration back to the original design. 
Let's take a look at the next slide. This is my grandson. And this weekend, any darling, you want to know which one he is? I don't have my pointer. So the little boy with the left has his hand up. They won the, um, the finals. And so he, the one right next to him, the little blonde, is my grandson. It's my daughter Catherine's son. It's the one that has eight children. <laughs> and they had just won the, uh, the finals in basketball. It was such a sight to see, and they were so excited. And it was just amazing. And, and certainly this coach was unbelievable. He certainly saw the potential in each team member, and they won the championship. But Jesus is not just a coach that sees our potential. He sees through a developed lens of love, seeing them as God intended. He sees them completed. And that's the way he saw the woman caught in adultery. He saw her as she was intended to be, created at the beginning of time. He didn't look through. And you know, we do this. You can take that down. We try to uh, fix people. And as women, we really do this well, don't we? We try to fix people. I see potential. I'm going to do, tell her this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to help her with her makeup, and I'm going to help her with her sin problem, and I'm going to help her with this, and I'm going to do a, that makeover, body, soul, and spirit, and before she knows, she's going to be a new creation in Christ. Goodness gracious, that poor woman who is your project. <laughs> Jesus doesn't see us as a project. He's not just a coach. He puts his lenses on, and he says, man, I know who I created her to be. I know her destiny. I know her potential. I know who she is. And I love the socks off of her, just like she is the woman in adultery. You see, he holds a scorecard in his hand. And the scorecard says this, it is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Yeah, I see you in your messy little place right there. But I see you as you are and were meant to be. Next slide. Here's the scorecard. You see, they won, and I was very proud of that, so I had to figure out a way to get this on the <laughs> film. So I'm framing my whole lesson around coaching and scorecards. You can take that down. Jesus has a scorecard, and in it it says, it is finished on the cross. Take the cup from me. God, I don't want to go through this, but Lord, I want your will. I want to do what I came to do. And you see, because he did that, his scorecard says, forgiven, redeemed, restored, back to the original intention. Restored means this. It means bring back, return to the former original condition. Jesus looked at the woman, and he saw her already restored. He saw her. She's dragged into the streets half naked. The question is, where in the world was the man? Why wasn't he dragged through the streets? Because we know in Deuteronomy, if you read your lesson, that indeed the man and the woman that were in this adulterous relationship were supposed to be taken outside the city and stoned. And speaking of those stones, each of us has a handful of stones. We're either stoning ourselves with our guilt and shame and regret or the shoulds and the oughts and the have-tos, or we're stoning someone else. And the Lord had them take their stones and do what? One by one by one. What stones do you have in your, in your hand? Today we sang about the rock. On Christ the solid rock we stand. The only rock that should be in our presence is the rock of Christ where we stand. And all those stones. And honestly, I'll tell you what I do in a practical way. Every single day I begin my day, as you know. Here I am, the one that you love. And I give him my name because he has 10,000 people that are talking to him. 
By the way, I'm the one in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and my name is Joanne Ellison, and my surname is this. And by the way, I had a bad day yesterday, but my name means full of grace, and I remind him of that. And he scratches his head every day and goes, whoa, that woman has a lot of words in the morning. And from that point, I take the stones that are in my hand, and I say, Father, forgive me. And every single stone, and he's quick to show me, Lord, where do I need to repent? What did I do yesterday? Was there something in my heart? And one by one, the stones get, begin to fall out of my hand. And Jesus picks them up. He crushes them. He pulverizes them. He pours the blood of Jesus over them. And he says, it is finished. Go and sin no more. What a beautiful name. His name. The name of Jesus. Next slide. 8, 1 through 11 is our text for today. And I've got to kind of wind this up. In fact, I'm not going to read it. The first part is we go to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came to the temple. And you know the story. You can take that down. You know the story that the woman is dragged through the streets. You see, they would go to the rabbi for a decision to be made. And in the eyes of the Jewish law, adultery was a serious crime. It was one of three of the very gravest sins punishable by death. And again, the, the law I told you about, the dilemma was this. If Jesus allowed the stoning, then he would lose his reputation for being mercy and love and a friend of sinners. But if he did not allow it, then he was breaking the law of Moses, a double entendre. We see this dilemma. This was the trap. Jesus writes in the sand, and they say that there were many things that would have been going on. Possibly he was just gaining time. Possibly, I love this one, he's acting as though he didn't hear them. And he's writing on the, um, so that they could see how cruel they were being, giving them time. The other one, later manuscripts who were trying to figure this thing out, the later manuscripts translate the passage this way. He himself, bowing his head, was writing with his finger on the earth their sins in the ground. The word write is, is graphi, graphin. And, but here the word is used kata graphin, which means he's writing down this, something against someone an offense. But I like the fourth one. And Juliana, you can come up here as I close out. The fourth one is what Max Lucado says. He diverted their eyes from her nakedness and her shame. And he bent down and he wrote down and everybody, of course, is writing, what is he doing? And all the eyes were taken off of her. What a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. You know, we have a lot of accusers. Some of them are right. Some of them are wrong. Some of them are ourselves. But Jesus is the God of second chances. The Pharisees didn't look at the, at the woman as a person. Jesus saw her as the one he had created. Jesus didn't say, your sin is okay. You made a mistake. No, he said, go and sin no more. But he's the light of the world. He's the prince of peace. And he is the one who restores us back into our original tent. And you know, women of God, there is nothing more beautiful than to see a person who is fully restored, standing in the light of Christ, holding their victory scorecard up of Jesus' words, it is finished, and walking in the destiny and the glory and the purpose of which God has called them. The enemy, the Pharisees, do not want you to walk in your destiny. Because if you're healed, and if you're delivered, 
And if you're set free and the needle moves, then the enemy has to crouch in a corner for the fear of the likes of you. Amen. Prayer teams, come on up. Come on.